Bibles to this morning's scriptures, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you'd like to follow along using a pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 1002. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jews have been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked that with generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Before we turn to study the word of the Lord together, let's take a moment and ask his blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come and worship this morning. Come and hear your word. Come and know about Jesus, know about you and the spirits and how we can glorify you more. Father, teach us this morning what you'd have us to know. Teach us what our response should be to the truth of this text. Lord, we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the world of American sports, there are plenty of famous names that we could point to that most of us, the overwhelming majority of us, I would say, are familiar with. Michael Jordan, for one. Tiger Woods, another. Babe Ruth. But in my mind, far and away, Babe Ruth stands apart from the rest, if nothing else than for the legend of, of the curse of the Bambino. See, in 1920, Babe Ruth was traded from the Boston Red Sox to the New York Yankees. And while at that point a healthy rivalry already existed between the two teams, that trade set that rivalry in stone. After hitting 49 home runs in his previous six seasons with the Red Sox, in his first year with the Yankees, he hit 54. He hit 59 the next season, and of course that uh, famous season in 1927 when Babe Ruth hit the gold standard for home runs of 60 in a single season. By the way, Babe Ruth was a pitcher. Pitchers aren't usually known for their ability to hit. They don't spend a lot of time practicing doing that. After 15 seasons with the Yankees in that famed moment where Babe Ruth pointed to the stands and called his shot 
and hit a home run, he had cemented himself as a legend, earning nicknames like the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clouds, and of course, the great Bambino. But after the Red Sox traded him, they didn't win a World Series again, or at least for 86 years, anyway. So one season turned into two, turned into five, turned into ten, and it goes on. So the legend goes that they didn't win because they had traded Babe Ruth. So what's the big deal about trading supposedly this, this greatest player to ever play the game of baseball? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that 2021 happened. You may not know this, but there was another pitcher in 2021 that began to hit really well. His name is Shohei Otani. He plays for the Angels, and in 2021, he, he hit 46 home runs. And murmurs of Babe Ruth began to surface. Commentators began to speak of Babe Ruth and Shohei Otani in the same sentence. It's a pretty taboo thing in the world of baseball to talk about Babe Ruth that way. Could Shohei Otani be another Babe Ruth? Could he really be better than Babe Ruth, given how the game has changed, how much better players are today? The question continues as Shohei Otani continues to play throughout his career. But the question of who's the greatest, this is the same question our writer of Hebrews is trying to answer here. The question of Jesus. The question of how much glory and honor are due to him. Is he really greater than Moses? The question of who Jesus is also demands a response. It's a question of what our response is to Jesus. Well, these are questions that need answering. Baseball will keep to baseball and time will tell and we'll see the stats and who was better. But Jesus, it's a question we can't wait to answer. It's a question of utmost importance. So as we dive into our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus as our apostle. We'll see Jesus as the better Moses. We'll see Jesus as our hope. And then we'll consider our response. Jesus the apostle, Jesus the better Moses, Jesus our hope, and then our response. So as we begin, we read in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... In the last week, Pastor Rattray preached most excellently the truth that Christ is our brother. He's our brother made in the flesh like us in every respect so that he could help us in every respect. We learned that last week, and so as we get into this section, the writer of Hebrews begins by addressing us with that new title. He addresses us as holy brothers. And yes, it's in the masculine, and the word is brothers and not sisters, but it's speaking to all of us, right? Therefore, holy brothers and yes, sisters as well. He's speaking to all of us for whom Christ suffered. But then we're given a different address, you who share in a heavenly calling. So if we understand that Christ is our brother and we are brothers and sisters with Christ and co-heirs with him, that, that title comes with an expectation, Right? When you get a new title or a promotion, that usually comes with some new requirements, doesn't it? We even do this with children. Think about all those really cute t-shirts that we get our children when they're going to have a little sibling born. 
They say, I'm a big sister or I'm a big brother. And we all go, oh, well, what are you going to do with your sibling? And it's usually some answer like, oh, I want to play with them or I can't wait to get to, you know, something like that. Or as my niece said when she found out she was going to have a little brother, I'm going to teach him all the words. (laughs) That was what she wanted to do. She understood that being a big sister, she had some responsibilities. And so we know that if we have this new title There's something that needs to be done with it. We expect that with a new designation, there's new expectations. So therefore, holy brothers, we who share in a heavenly calling, and here's the expectation, here's the requirement. Consider Jesus. That's it. Consider Jesus. What are we to do now that we've been identified as brothers and sisters of Christ? Consider Jesus. The next few verses are going to help us understand how we should consider Jesus, how we should think about him, what we should know about him. But let's pause for just a moment and take what Hebrews is calling us to do, what our heavenly calling is. Our heavenly calling, our priority as Christians, is to consider Jesus. The number one thing we're supposed to do once we understand that Christ is our brother is to think about him more. And, and yeah, we've, we've read the Gospels, we know about Jesus, and, and many of us can quote the important things that he said, and if that's you, trust me, there's more. There's much more to consider. Or, or where do I begin? How do I begin to think about Jesus if, if that's you? It's a great place to be because there's plenty to learn. So I'll just say this. Start with the scriptures. Fill your mind with the scriptures because they all point to him. They point to Christ. All of it points to him. So consider Jesus. But here in verse 1, we're given a pretty unique attribute of Christ. He's called an apostle. It's the only place in scripture where he's explicitly called an apostle. Now, the word apostle means one who was sent. We tend to think of of the apostles, those 12 who were with Christ from the beginning. They were Jesus' inner circle. They were the ones called and taught by Christ, the ones with whom the church would be built. They were the ones that heard the Great Commission with their own ears. Their command was to go out. They were being sent out into all the earth by Christ. Paul had to defend his own apostleship because he wasn't with them from the beginning, but he did see Christ on the road to Damascus, and he was then sent out to the Gentiles. We know that Paul, uh, excuse me, John, the apostle John, died in exile on Patmos. He'd been sent there. Philip ministered and baptized to an Ethiopian. Thomas died in India. One uh, church in Egypt traces their planting and their heritage to Mark. But Christ, an apostle, we don't often think of him that way. But consider this. He left the splendors of heaven. He was sent by the Father to earth. John 5, this is Jesus speaking in John chapter 5. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Passage skips down a little bit. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father 
has sent me. Christ was sent by the Father to do many great works. And in my mind, this begs the question, why? What was the reason for all of this? Why was Christ sent as the Father's apostle? Well, he came to point us back to the Father, to bring glory to the Father. And to do that, he went to the cross. To bring glory to the Father, Christ goes to the cross, bearing the weight and punishment for our sin. And the Father poured out his wrath on Christ, putting him to death. And then Christ, acting as our high priest, offering himself as the perfect sacrifice, Ephesians tells us that he descended. He was dead for three days, and after the third day, the Father raised him from death. The power of God raised Christ from the dead, and so Christ was exalted in his resurrection and in his ascension. And through all of that, we see the glory of God most prominently displayed. Keeping the glory of the Father in mind, this is how John begins his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Christ came, he was sent to bring glory to the Father, to turn our hearts back to the Father. He was our apostle. He came with a purpose. He was sent with a mission. He's the perfect apostle who accomplished all the tasks the Father gave him to do. He brings glory to the Father by bringing salvation to his people. So our task, we're told, is to consider him. Consider what he's done. Our calling as brothers and sisters in Christ is to consider this. Consider Jesus. He was sent with a purpose. He accomplished that purpose by becoming our great high priest. And that's what we confess together as our text goes on. We confess that Jesus was the son of God. God himself, he's the one who brought about the perfect plan of God. So when we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or or one of the other great confessions from the church, we confess these things. We confess who the Father is, who sent the Son and the Spirit to bring the Father glory. So we're called as those united to Christ, those whom he's called to himself, to consider him, consider his mission, consider who he is. Then our text urges us then to consider Christ, consider that he was faithful to the task the Father had appointed for him. We see Christ in the garden so clearly. Father, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me. And see the angst and the anxiety that Christ has, and yet still he goes. He was faithful to the plan. Our text reads in verse 2, Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory the builder of a house has than the house itself. For the previous two chapters in Hebrews, the writer has been confronting many cultural assumptions that the Jewish people had, and in particular Jewish believers had. In dealing with angels in the previous couple of chapters, Uh, there seems to be this cultural fascination that the people of Israel had with angels. In fact, if you read uh, other literature of of the Jewish people from this time or some of the books written between the Old and the New Testaments, 
They're filled with stories of angels. There's a kind of a, this fascination, it's a it's genre almost of writing about angels. Angels were held in, in a very high regard, much higher than they should have been. Just think about this. Every time we see an angel in scripture, what happens? People get afraid. They're tempted to bow down and worship. And the angel says, no, no, no. It's not me. I'm a servant. It's about Jesus. It's about God. But in these stories that are written, that's not always the case. They're held in in much higher regard than they should be. And so the writer of Hebrews is addressing that cultural assumption by saying, no, Jesus is greater even than the angels. Basically, the writer's saying, if you think angels are great, wait until you really know who Jesus is. See, all those passages about angels point us to Christ as well. So when we come to our passage here in chapter 3, we've moved on from angels to now considering Moses. And Moses was an icon in Jewish history. He's the one that led the people out of Egypt. He had communion with God in a way that very, very few people in history have. He received the tablets of the covenant that had the Ten Commandments on them, written by God himself. And after Moses came down the mountain, the radiance and the glory of God shone from his face so brightly he had to wear a veil. Moses pleaded and begged with God for the people of Israel. And this is one of the most fascinating prayers to me in all of Scripture. See, God wanted to punish the people of Israel for their disobedience, for bowing down to an idol. God says, I want to wipe them out, Moses. I want to start over with you. But listen now to how Moses prays. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised to you I shall give to them and they shall inherit it forever. It's a powerful prayer. When God's just said he wants to wipe the people off the earth. And Moses prays, he intercedes for them. And what is the Lord's response? In this instance, right after this prayer, the Lord doesn't speak. He does answer Moses later. But right here, there's just a narration in the text, just a note that says, and the Lord relented of the thing of which he spoke. So who is Moses? Moses is the one who dared to speak to God, dared to say, do not bring this disaster on your people. The Lord answered that prayer. Who is Moses? He's the one that after being a murderer, returned to Egypt and pled with Pharaoh to let Israel go. He's the one who was obedient to put his staff into the Red Sea and the waters were split. He's the one that instructed Israel to put the blood of a lamb over the door and on the posts so that the angel would pass over their homes during the final plague in Egypt. He's the one whose arms had to be lifted up during a battle. He's the one that heard from God himself, received the tablets of stone written by God himself. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, the the law, the Torah. He's an intermediary that begged God for forgiveness and the people of Israel were spared. 
Do you think that he should be remembered well, honored, especially among the people of Israel? Of course he should. The writer of Hebrews says there is one greater. How could someone dare to say there's, there's someone greater than Moses? With something this serious, with something as, as foundational to Jewish people in their faith as Moses is, you better dare not impugn his honor. But our text in verse 4 tries to uh, kind of soften the blow a little bit, I think. Tries to prepare us for the incredible statement that's about to be made. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And we know this to be true, don't we? It's the Lord who sustains all of life. It is he who created all things. And so here we're being prepared to receive the next statement, a, a uh, shocking statement to the people of Israel. Moses was just a servant. Put yourself into the people of Israel's shoes. Put yourself in the context of the readers of this letter. This is written to Jewish believers who were struggling with the idea of whether to, to keep their faith in Christ or should we return to Judaism. And here you read that Moses is only a servant. How shocking of a statement that is. It's an offensive statement. He wrote the law. He led the people out of Egypt, but he was only a servant. But Christ... Our passage says, is faithful over the house as a son. And there's a great difference between a servant and a son, isn't there? A son is an owner. A son will care for it because he has a personal stake in the matter. A son would risk his life. See, Moses prayed begging for God's forgiveness, not knowing whether God would answer that prayer. But listen how Christ prays. This is from John 17, he's been praying for his disciples that they would be strong, have faith, that they would overcome the world. And then Christ says this, I do not ask for these only, that being his disciples, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christ takes a moment here before he goes to the cross to pray for his disciples and to pray for all those who will believe in him. See, he is praying with the knowledge that what he's about to do will save his people. Moses prays not knowing, trusting the Lord. And Moses, uh, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus prays with confidence, knowing that people will be saved and more will come to know him. And he prays for all those. Have you considered that? that before Christ goes to the cross, he prays for everyone that would believe in him. Amen. So if you are here this morning and you believe in Christ, he had prayed for you. Amen. This is why Christ is deserving of more honor and more glory than Moses. So if you don't know Christ, consider him. Consider why every true believer you've ever known makes such a big deal about him. Consider why we come here week after week, singing, praying, hearing the message of the gospel. Consider those things because he is worthy of it all. Verse 6 concludes, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence 
and our boasting and our hope. So this begs the question, because the text doesn't say it explicitly, what our confidence, what our hope is. Well, it's, it's Jesus. He's our confidence. He's the one greater than angels. He's the one greater than Moses. And if anyone is greater than angels and greater than Moses, then we can certainly have confidence in him. He's the almighty creator. We can trust him. He's our apostle, the one sent and endured the cross. He fulfilled all which he set out to do, and in becoming our great high priest by offering himself up as the sacrificial Passover lamb, he offers a way to eternal life. He's our hope. Second Corinthians tells us that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. It is Christ who alone, at the sending of the Father, came and offered us hope the hope of eternal life with him. We ought to think and meditate on that hope, on that eternal life with him. We can look forward to heaven, but we also get to look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a new place for God's people to live, where we have access to God in a way we've never had before, a place where there will be no more pain and no more suffering, a place where you will be loved more fully than you ever could be on earth. An eternal life with Christ is also the place where you will be able to love each other more fully than we ever could here on earth. It's the place where the thing we need the most, God himself, Christ himself, is there with us and we can be loved by, understand, uh, loved by him and understand and experience that love in a deeper way than we ever could here. That's our hope. Our hope is eternal life with Christ, by Christ, beside Christ, who will fulfill the deepest desires and needs. And we get to experience that in more significant ways than we could ever possibly imagine. That's our hope. That's the hope we have in Christ. So friends, consider Christ. Consider him our apostle as deserving the greatest glory, giving us the greatest hope. Knowing Christ, knowing who he is, and, and answering that question in our own hearts demands a response. For that response, our passage in Hebrews returns to quote the Old Testament, as has been done many times in Hebrews already. To quote Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and, and notice that, designation as the Holy Spirit says. What a testament to what we believe about Scripture. Yes, it was written by human authors, but they were carried along by the Spirit, inspired by him. So certainly it was written by the Holy Spirit. And this also lends some weight. Hey, pay attention to this. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. It's why when we read the Scripture each week, we ask uh, we, we have that call and response. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Because it is. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Consider Jesus. 
Consider he's our apostle. Consider how glorious he is. Consider how he's our hope. But we can only respond in two ways. We can accept it, believe it. We can let the truth of Christ and who he is strengthen our hearts. We can respond to the spirit working life and faith in us, or we can reject it. Psalm 95, uh, which is quoted here, references a scene from Israel's history from the book of Numbers. I'm sure you all know the story. Israel had sent spies into the land of Canaan, and they saw the large people, the, the huge fortified cities, and the seemingly insurmountable odds, and the people rebelled. They wanted to cast Moses aside, choose a new leader, and then go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back into slavery instead of following God into the land. They wanted to go back and make bricks instead of trusting the God who swallowed up the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Instead of trusting God that gave them victory over the Amalekites, they'd rather walk back across the wilderness. They would rather not trust the pillar of cloud they saw by day and the, and the fire by night who'd been leading them for years and go back to the worthless idols in Egypt. They'd heard the Lord. They'd seen his work for years. They'd been rescued in a truly significant and magnificent way. And still they rejected and rebelled. That's the option before us. When we hear of Christ, when we read of all that he's done for us, when we hear who he is, who he truly claims to be as the son of God, God himself, to be greater than Moses, that's the option. We can trust him or we can harden our hearts. So here in our passage, still at the beginning of Hebrews, the author draws a line in the sand. You've heard that Christ is greater than the angels. You've heard that he's greater than Moses, and that demands a response. If you think the Lord might be calling you to faith, consider Jesus. If you think God might be enlivening your heart to respond to him, then consider Jesus. Consider what he was sent to do. Consider what he did. Consider that he prayed for all of his people. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just some other person. He's not just some Jewish rabbi. He's our hope. So what should our response be to that? It should be the same as as the Apostle Thomas when he encountered Jesus after the resurrection the first time. Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And if that's your response, then you will certainly enter God's rest. You'll be in eternity with him. But if that's not your response, if your response is as the people of Israel who wish to go back to slavery, then God will give you that desire. He will let you go back to slavery. He will not, you will not be in the rest that he's promised. And let's be clear about this. Hell is a real place. It's not a place where God is absent. It's not a pleasant place. Hell is the place where God's wrath is fully present. Because a good and loving as he is, and he is full of grace and mercy and love, he's also wrathful. He's also just. And so if you are without the saving work of Christ in your life, you will bear the punishment for your sin. You will feel the fullness of God's wrath poured out on you for your sin. So does our response matter? It certainly does. We know that it's God who saves, that it's his spirit speaking and working in our lives along with the word of God to draw us to himself. But this doesn't absolve us of the responsibility we have for our own sin. 
We need Christ, the one who was without sin. We need our great high priest. We need our apostle. We need him to bring us hope, to bring us eternal life. In a moment, we're gonna come to the table. At the Lord's Supper, we have the chance to respond in faith to that work that God has already done in our lives. It's at the table we look forward to our hope. We look forward to an eternity in glory with him. And the table is also a chance for those that don't know Christ to consider him. Consider who he is and what he's done for his people. Christ is the apostle, sent to be our great high priest. And it's his death that we proclaim again at the table, again and again, until he returns. And we are looking forward to his return. We're looking forward to him as our hope and our comfort. So dear brother and sister, do not stop considering Jesus. Consider him all the time in every area of your life because that's our first duty. Consider Jesus, the one deserving of all honor and all glory. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending your son to us. We thank you for the work that he did We thank you that he became our great high priest. And through him we have hope. Through him we have eternal life. Father, we cannot say thank you enough. So Father, we pray all this in the one you sent. In your son's name, Jesus. Amen.